We are, of course, in a series, eight to ten week series on biblical and reformed worship. This is part three in that series. And to remind you all of the goal, we want to look at the reformed doctrine of worship. We want to demonstrate how it's supported by Scripture and vice versa. Ultimately, we want to explain why we do what we do here in this church, what we, what we believe and why we believe it for our doctrine of worship. And of course, as I've talked about in past weeks, worship is central to the life of the church. From it flows everything that we do. So just some quick review before we jump into today. We're looking at how do we study the issue. My goal is not just to give you a bunch of information, but I want you to be able to know how to um, study this and other issues in a consistent, a biblical, and a reformed way. And so we, we began, and this is what we're going to continue on today, uh, approaching the issue theologically, taking a, a theological approach to the doctrine of worship, to the study of the doctrine of worship. And so last week we talked about this, about approaching worship exegetically and theologically. Exegetically, of course, deals with specific scriptures. Theologically, it has more to do with comparing um, scripture with scripture, making deductions, as seeing worship as part of uh, an all-encompassing worldview, biblical and reformed worldview. I gave the analogy of the sweater that you start pulling on one thread and everything unravels. It's the beauty of the scriptures is that there is consistency and we can make logical deductions, we can make scriptural deductions when we approach issues theologically. So we consider last week, just looking at the confession, that the Confession's teaching on worship comes in chapter 22 after 21 other doctrines or 21 other chapters where doctrines, uh, other doctrines are explained. And so the chapter on worship assumes things on the nature of God, the nature of man, the authority of Scripture, the truth of the gospel. Worship is built on top of all of these other things, and so it's connected to all of these other things. And that's kind of, again, what we're continuing on today. But we also looked at Scripture, theological deduction in Scripture. And we noted, uh, for example, just two examples, Matthew 22, Jesus taught on the resurrection. Acts chapter 2, Peter preaching Christ from Psalm 16. And we looked at those as examples of Jesus and Peter approaching an issue theologically, not just looking to a text and saying, okay, this text explicitly says this, but comparing Scripture with Scripture and approaching it in a theological manner, and that's what we're doing here. And so that's where we ended, approaching worship from our doctrine of Scripture. That's what we started on. We didn't complete last week. Approaching it theologically, beginning with our doctrine of Scripture, recognizing that what we believe about the Word of God is going to affect, obviously, right, our view of worship, our doctrine of worship. So, the plan for today, we're going to get as far as we can, and it looks like we'll get this one covered and maybe this one, we'll see. Uh, we got started a little late. 
But uh, this is kind of where we're going. Next week, we're going to tackle these two. The doctrine of worship in light of Scripture this week, in light of who God is. Thirdly, in light of who we are. And fourthly, in light of the gospel. And then from there, we're going to jump into the particulars. From there, we'll look at liturgy. We'll look at public and private worship. We'll look at the regular principle of worship. We'll look at uh, the Sabbath. We'll look at um, uh, music, music styles, um, hymnody, psalmody, all of those things. That's kind of where we're going. But we're getting the foundational stuff out of the way first. So, let's now talk about the doctrine of worship in light of Scripture. My thesis here is we must approach this topic in light of the truth that Scripture is our final rule of faith and practice. And what's so interesting about this is that, you know, often in conservative circles, we do confess this. I talked about it last week, right? We believe the Bible. The Bible's the Word of God. We just believe nothing but the Bible. Sorry for my southern accent there, you know. But if you press a little bit, that's not always the case. And so what I'm trying to argue here is that a, a, a robust doctrine of Scripture uh, manifests itself in ways in which we might not see right off the bat. Scripture, I guess I should say, we must ask the question, is Scripture the final rule? Is Scripture sufficient? That's probably the most important question. Is it sufficient? Is it complete? Or is there something else that we need? Think about that, and uh, I'll explain what I mean. So, our text is 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. But here's the key, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. I just want you to think about, what does that last phrase leave out? Nothing. Complete. Equipped for every good work. This teaches that Scripture is sufficient, it is complete, it is enough to equip us, to fully equip us for everything in life. Every good work that God would require of us. And again, this leaves nothing out. The background here, of course, is that this was the cry of the Reformation captured in one of the five solas, sola scriptura. All truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life is taught either explicitly or implicitly in scripture. All truth. So again, think about this in light of worship. Is there something necessary for the proper worship of God? that is not included in Holy Scripture. Not if we confess Sola Scriptura. So it's not a claim that all truth of every kind is found in Scripture. You know, it, can Scripture tell us how to repair an automobile? <laughs> it would be nice, right? <laughs> scripture uh, cannot teach you anything explicitly or specifically about computer science. 
It's not a claim that all truth of every kind is found in Scripture. But it is a claim that all truth necessary for our salvation, all truth necessary for us to live a life that is pleasing to God, is found in Scripture. It means that everything necessary, everything that binds our consciences, everything that God would require of us, every duty that God would require of us, is given to us in Scripture. Now, again, this may seem very basic, but we're going to tease this out a little bit. And we'll hear some feedback as well. Uh, Well, let me cover this real quick. Again, remember our Confessions chapter on worship. It talks about the fact that the light of nature is kind of obvious um, from nature, that there is a God, He's Lord, He does good, He's to be feared, loved, praised, and all of that. But at the end of this, it says that the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself, limited by His own revealed will, so that He may not be worshipped, basically, in any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. We're going to talk about this more in the the coming weeks, but this is a Reformed doctrine, essentially the regular principle of worship. Again, we're going to get into that. But true worship, a faithful doctrine of worship, rests only in what Scripture specifically teaches, in what it specifically prescribes. It just makes sense that if God is Lord and we are sinful, that He's got to tell us what is the worship that is pleasing to Him. So I want you to think about this in light of innovation of worship in our day. And this is really where the five solas, the cry of the Reformation, um, was really centered on. It was particularly related to Roman Catholic abuses. We have things like incense, altars, the lighting of candles, the use of images and statues in worship, various rituals, penance, saying 50 Hail Marys, right? These are things that are not found in Scripture that the Roman Catholic Church teaches, either implicitly or explicitly, that are necessary for the proper worship and pleasing of God. But also think about this in related to the modern church. And again, we're going to get into this more, but I just want to lay the groundwork here. You have the use of drama, video clips, comedy acts, entertainment. But more particularly, things like like altar calls. Every Every head bowed, every eye closed. Pray this prayer, raise your hand, come forward, sign a card. These are the modern church's equivalents of these Things in the Roman Catholic Church. Means of grace. Well, if you really want to get right with God, you need to come forward and make a decision 
If you really want to get right with God, you need to rededicate your life. That comes through this process of coming forward and going through this ritual. It's, it's, it's amazing. how in, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church, a large Southern Baptist church, uh, for my, I guess, my teenage years. And uh, I just, it, it always baffled me how the same people would rededicate their life on a regular basis. Um, my friends and friends that you know, I was I was an unbeliever. I was involved in some pretty um, sinful stuff, and you know, friends that I was involved in uh, or I knew who lived this particular way, every two or three months would reded- rededicate their life before the whole church and make that commitment. And this time they mean it, and it's like the Roman Catholic doctrine of penance, essentially. It's going through this ritual, as if the ritual is a way in which I can get right with God and find the power to escape the sins that torment me. But my argument here, and not to get into this specifically, but my argument here is that Scripture is sufficient. Do we believe I guess my question is, do we believe then that Scripture is sufficient? Or that we must look outside of what's in Scripture in order to find things that really capture, you know, capture uh, the hearts of people in a way that really connects them to God? You hear things like, how will we reach people unless we do these things? You know, preaching and singing, especially hymns, reading of scripture, it's just so boring. We need to reach this generation. And so we've got to have some some things to lighten things up here. We need to give people a means to where we can put them on the spot, where they can have that existential crisis of coming face-to-face with God so they can come forward and make a decision. That's how we do evangelism. How are people going to get saved? We don't give an opportunity to walk the aisle and come forward. So we need to institute this altar call. You see, the thinking behind this, I mean, it's, it's, it's good intentions in some respect is... There's a desire to reach people. There's a desire to see the things of God go forth. And there's a desire to see people, you know, inspired to love and serve God. But the question we've got to come back to, is Scripture sufficient? Or must we look outside for something else? Any questions at this point? I've been talking a lot. So, feedback? Rebuttal? They might be helpful. Right. So they could argue, yeah, there's enough in Scripture to get it done, but there may be ways to do better. Okay. Not that they would tell you, oh, don't do this thing in the Bible. Yeah. But they'd say, well, you know, we can can help it along a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I think at the end of the day, at least most evangelicals would come back and say, no, it, it really is the Word of God. 
But these things help. Right. It's not that we, you know, that completely you set this aside. It's just that it, it, yeah. everything works better that yeah. way. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll get into that. Okay. <laughs> I want to think about, in relation even to that, yeah. this question from the Heidelberg Catechism. There's a question number 98. May not images be permitted in churches in place of books for the unlearned? In fact, it's funny, I, was, uh, I ran into a Roman Catholic this week at uh, Moho Burrito, and the line was so long that I had 15 minutes to talk with her, basically. Is it Mojo Burrito? <laughs> See, I come from California, so it's Moho, but I know people around here say Mojo. It's, you're true Southerners. But uh, I have 15 minutes in the line with this lady, and she had, uh, her and her husband were, and their three kids were in line, and they... Um, had visited, uh, it was spring break, and they had gone to some sacred Roman Catholic site in Alabama for their spring break, and so the, she was telling me all about it. And uh, I'm you know, trying to be gracious and explain what we believe. But she said they had a whole scene there where uh, the life of Jesus was, they had this, whatever, for kids to see, like, I don't know, like a wax museum type thing. Maybe it wasn't wax, but like it, the, the story of Jesus depicted in images that you could walk through. And she's like, it was so amazing because it wasn't just a word that they heard, but my kids could actually see something. They really can't connect with just hearing, but seeing. And I'm like, wow. It's amazing she would put it that way because that's (laughs) the cry of the reformers, right? It's the word. It's the word. It's the cry of the word of God. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. The ear is the instrument for salvation, not the eye, because the eye is subjective. We interpret it. The word is something that comes to us and we can't argue with it. But it's amazing she would put it that way. Um, Oh, yeah, absolutely. 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 But in this day, when the Heidelberg Catechism was written, that's what the Roman Catholic Church argued. Well, we're not going to give the, the people the scriptures. We need to give them images because they can identify because they haven't been educated. They don't know. Yeah, are you saying you're like against children's Bibles that have graphics? Or I'm not trying to get into that. <laughs> I'm not trying to get into that. Um, in fact, that's not the reason I, I pulled this up. Um, yes, I, I don't like children's Bibles. I think... We need to train our kids to hear and to read uh, rather than see. But uh, that's a discussion for another time. <laughs> what I want to point out here is the, the answer to this is no, we should not be try to be wiser than God. And I think that really captures the essence of my point here. When we look at these other things, do we presume to be wiser than God? Well, the word's not going to reach people. I know. I know what will help. <laughs> and we presume to be wiser than God. We look out, we see what works. It's pragmatism. It's good business practice, right? If you're getting a good return on investment, you keep doing that same thing. And if you're not getting a good return on investment, you, you seek to look and find out where exactly... Uh, things are going wrong so that you can make changes. That really ties to last week's sermon. It does, you know, yeah. Where Jesus pushed the right button. He knew it was because it worked. But he didn't stick with that button. 
Absolutely, yeah. He would not continue to do miracles like the crowds wanted, but he taught and he preached and everyone left him. And uh, yeah, it would be tempting to think, okay, everyone's abandoning my ministry. What should I do now? We're going to see that a little bit today because that theme continues in chapter 7. But the issue really comes down to, do we presume either implicitly or explicitly? to be wiser than God when it comes to how we ought to worship Him or what works in worship or how we ought to frame our worship services in order to have a greater effect. I heard John MacArthur say one time that... um, I'm trying to remember exactly how he said it. Uh, But he said, I can tell you uh, give me 10 minutes uh, to, to listen to a man preach and I can tell you what he values most. It's because preachers, and I'm definitely speaking from personal experience here, when you stand up in front of people, your heart's desire is to make a connection with them, to get something across. You want to say something that will encourage, inspire, bring people to faith, cause people to love God more, to have a a good effect, right? And so what MacArthur is saying is, you can see right away whether a man's trust is in the Word of God or if it's in something else. Because in preaching, you're going to rely on what you value the most, what you think will have the greatest effect. Is it stories? Is it jokes? Is it emotional appeal? Or is it the Word of God? (laughs) I resent that comment. Now, this is not an excuse that preaching should be boring, and it shouldn't be beautiful, and it shouldn't be, um, um, you know, creative in many, in how we just, you know, engaging. I don't want to discount that. I don't want to say, okay, now... You know, I'm just, you guys have to put up with me and I'm just going to sit here and read. But still, it it, it captures a little bit of truth. What is, what do we believe that works? What do we believe works the most in that sense? Or what do we believe about the scriptures comes to the forefront and how we frame our worship services and how we proclaim the word of God? Do we believe his word is sufficient that everything we need is there or that we must look elsewhere in order to have the best effect. All right, so real quickly here. This is a matter of faith. It often feels as though other things would work better. It often feels like I can connect to God better when I hear music that I love. The style of music that most appeals to me. Kim's back there thinking classic rock, yes. (laughs) It feels better to have music that we love. It feels like we're connecting with God. It feels better when we sit under preaching that, you know, I just really, really got a lot out of the sermon today. And we talked about a little bit about this last week. Oftentimes our feelings are not a good indicator of you know, how the worship or the preaching is affecting us. 
because our feelings are biased and they're subjective and we are ignorant naturally by, by sin. So it's a matter of faith. Do we go with what feels right or do we go with what the Word of God says? I added this quote in here from James Montgomery Boyce talking about methodology in worship and in um, um, church methodology in general. What we win them with is what we win them to. If you win people to Christ with, with jokes and with drama skits, comedy acts, or whatever, that's what you're winning them to. And as soon as those things, as soon as you try to move from those things into something more substantive, um, something of more substance, you're going to lose them. What you draw people in with is what you draw them to. So, this will determine where we go from here in the area of worship. What we believe about the sufficiency of Scripture. Alright, I'm gonna move quickly here. We've got ten minutes. Doctrine of God, excuse me, doctrine of worship in light of who God is. Are there any questions on Scripture? Just smiles and snickers, I see. Cool. You're secretly mocking me. All right. We just don't feel like questioning scripture. Okay, that's good. That's good. Very noble of you. Very noble of you. So just like what we believe about Scripture will affect our doctrine of worship, what we believe about God will affect our doctrine of worship. I want you to consider, for example, the prohibition against making carved images in the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness. You shall not bow down to serve them. Bow down to them or serve them, for I'm a jealous God. Why does God say this? Come on, good Presbyterian Reformed people. It's idolatry, okay. But think about this in relation to the nature of God. Why does God say this? He's a jealous God, yes. You can't confine him to an image. Exactly. Why does God say this? Since you saw no form on that day when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves. You see, I'm not an image. I can't be captured in an image. I can't be captured in an idol. That's my nature because I am a spirit, we know from Scripture. Because of this, it affects how you worship. You can't worship Him in a way that is contrary to His nature. So because He's a spirit and He can't be seen with, his, with the eyes, to represent Him visibly is to represent Him imperfectly, deficiently, idolatrously. And this was actually the sin that Israel committed in making the golden calf. I mentioned this a few weeks ago. It's easy to think they were worshiping another god. But they called the calf the God that led them out of Egypt. They wanted a visual depiction, like the nations around them, like they saw in Egypt, a visual depiction of their God. They weren't happy with the God they just heard. They wanted a God they could see, something tangible, something they could get their minds around, something they could get their hands on. 
something they could bow down to, something to, to connect them visually, to inspire them. Sound familiar? And they called the golden calf Yahweh, the God that led them out of Egypt. So not, by not understanding who God is, one can have a deficient theology of worship and offer worship that is idolatrous. Continue on. Think about this in relation like the Muslim God, Allah. Here is a God who demands total, complete submission at the edge of a sword. He hates his enemies. He shows absolutely no mercy or love towards them. In light of who this God is to them, and it makes sense why they prostrate themselves in worship. And they bow repeatedly and they show absolute total submission to him. This isn't an argument against the fact that we, you know, obviously we too bow before the Lord. We too prostrate ourselves and show reverence in things. But this flows out more of who their God is in relation to Him being a God who shows no mercy and demands perfect total submission. The popular Jesus. And Jesus is your boyfriend. This is the, uh, the therapeutic Jesus, the one who never criticizes you. He's never judgmental over you. He's always positive. He's your best friend helping you have your best life now. Buddy Jesus. Buddy Jesus. Have you seen the figurines at the Christian bookstore where you see the kid playing baseball and there's Jesus behind him, you know, and then the kid uh, running cross country and Jesus is right there with him smiling. Or you have the, the businessman... Uh, painting where the guy's in his office and Jesus is there with his arm around him. I mean, this is the, the idea that you know Jesus is that, that best friend helper of yours to really encourage and inspire you. This is a, a popular view of Jesus. Well, it makes sense if you look at Jesus this way, why you would approach Him casually in ways like you're hanging out with an old friend. Put on some good tunes, dress in your torn jeans. <laughs> See, I got another one. <laughs> And just have a good time hanging out with your buddy. Our view of who God is affects our doctrine of worship. All right, three minutes. I got to hurry. Just in answer to this, consider that God's attributes from chapter 22 1. Again, God is Lord. He's sovereign over all. He's good. He's do, he does good to all. So He is Lord and sovereign, like the Muslim God, Allah, in a sense. But He's also good. And He does good un, unto all. So He doesn't demand total submission in such a way. But neither is He you know, your boyfriend, because He is sovereign over all. And He's Lord of heaven and earth. And in light of this, This doctrine of God calls us to respond with godly fear, the fear of the Lord. Who God is causes us to respond in a particular way. So, I wanted to ask this question, you know, when did you last consider worship in relation to the fear of the Lord? 
And you guys come from Reformed and Presbyterian backgrounds, so maybe this isn't new to you. It was certainly new to me growing up in the Southern Baptist Church and coming into Reform. I never really thought of the fear of the Lord. I never really thought about that in relation to worship. But we'll close with this. I just want to draw your attention to two, two uh, passages of Scripture in relation to this. In Psalm 2, the psalmist calls us to serve the Lord with fear and to rejoice with trembling, to kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Here is an approaching of God in worship through fear. There's rejoicing there, but do fear and trembling. You may say, well, that's just the Old Testament, right? Even though it talks about the sun. There's another one. In the New Testament, Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. That's what we're talking about, right? With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This word reverence literally means fear. Fear and awe. There's worship that is in truth, in accordance with Scripture and the nature of God, acceptable worship. And there's worship that is in spirit, in the right spirit, fear and awe. If we understand who God is, then it will lead us into worshiping Him in the proper manner. All right, I've got to end there. Um, Any questions? Any comments? We'll pick up next week right here and just a couple more points on who God is uh, before we turn to now consider who man is. Jack? Um, a common mistake I've seen by the people with myself and like some churches is that we take the idea of the fear of God and turn it into kind of like legalism, like careful legalism, and that we um, keep the commandments lest you be struck, struck yeah. down. Yeah. Um, would you say that that is also kind of conforming God to a carved image like? Yeah, it's an overbalance of the law, absolutely. As if um, the revelation of God only comes to us in the law, do this, do this, do this, without understanding the nature of grace, the nature of the forgiveness of Christ in the gospel. And that embracing Christ by faith is the ultimate goal of the Christian life, not simply just to um, get us to cross our T's and dot our I's in the area of obedience. God saves us in order to obey uh, but the ultimate goal is love and faith in Christ, and um, is keeping that those things in tension and balance. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah, and hopefully we can you know talk about that more, and, and uh, we will talk about that more in relation to worship. Is holding that tension between what God demands of us, uh, but also uh, not acting as if that is the end goal itself. Let's close in prayer. Our Lord God, we thank you for your truth again, uh, that your word comes to us and it brings light and revelation 
and it saves us from our own faulty thinking and sinful inclinations. We pray, Lord, that your word would have its effect in our hearts regarding this issue. You would give us clear thinking, that you would give us hearts that are submissive to your word, and that you would indeed sanctify us and conform us into your image through the revelation of your great name. Be with us now as we turn towards worship. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.